right, if you are new, this might be your first week this week. I just want to catch all of us up on where we are. We're in the middle of a six-week series. Actually, we're toward the end. We've got one week left next week. So today is week five, and the theme of this semester is refuge. And that comes from Psalm 73, verse 28, is our uh, passage, or is our anchor verse this semester. And it says, but for me, it is good to be near God. And the psalmist says, I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. I have made the Lord my refuge. So for the last four weeks, we've been talking about what God means when he says, I am your refuge. What does it mean for God to be my refuge? And if you uh, were with me the first week, you uh, heard me describe what refuge in my mind means. The way I define refuge is it's more of a physical, circumstantial situation. A refuge for me is typically a cozy couch, a warm fire, soft pajamas, chips and queso, and a great series on Netflix. That's a refuge for me. The actual definition of refuge means protective covering or safe haven. And so I feel protected and safe in that environment. But what's interesting is I begin to study and we begin to learn God's word. He tells us that his refuge is himself. And so God as our refuge means his presence is indeed the refuge. So circumstances will not always be comfy and cozy in my life, but that does not mean that I am now uncovered or unsafe. I'm always safe. I'm always protected because God, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Jesus Christ, his son lives in me. And so his presence is my refuge despite my circumstances. And that's what we've been looking at. And, and we started the, the series in the Old Testament. And we learned that there used to be cities of refuge that were set up and indicated for those that needed them in the Old Testament. And then God said he, he made a shift in the New Testament when the Holy Spirit came after Jesus ascended back to heaven. And he said, I am indeed your refuge. But what's interesting is he said, I am your God and you are my people. I get to define refuge. And I don't like that all of the time because sometimes I want to call the shot. Really all the time I want to call the shots. And the Lord says, no, if you come under the shadow of the almighty, if you come under my refuge, I get to define it for you. And it's always the best thing for you whether you feel that way or not. So we've been looking at the surprising ways God has provided refuge for his people throughout scripture. Week two, we looked in Daniel three at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they were in the fiery furnace and God was with them in the fire. And we looked at the hard truth that God does not always relieve us or deliver us out of the fire, but yet instead he goes in there with us and brings us out on the other side. His presence was a refuge. In week three, we looked at Hebrews when the Lord says, you can come boldly to the throne having been sprinkled by the blood, that we get to enter into his presence at any time because of the blood of Jesus. And that indeed is a refuge and we take that for granted at times. Week four, we looked at the refuge in 2 Timothy. That is our mind. The Lord said, I have given you the mind of Christ. You do not have a spirit of fear, but you have, a pow- you have one of power, love, and a sound mind. We talked about what it feels like to feel crazy 
at times when we feel like we're a little off our rocker. We have crazy trains of thoughts going through our mind. We can't shut our mind off. And sometimes the enemy wants me to believe you're really crazy. And the Lord says, no, 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 you're not. I have given you a sound mind. I just have to learn how to access that sound mind and believe it. And then last week, uh, no, that was last week. This week, we're going to talk about refuge, that we find refuge when we obey God. Refuge is found in obedience. And oftentimes when I think, for my personality especially, when I hear the word obey, that sounds like womp, womp, womp to me. That sounds like a joy killer. And so when I have read scripture in the past about God's desire for me to obey him, I have read that in the wrong context or I've read that with the wrong tone and I've misunderstood that. And I read it through the filter that God's a joy killer, that obedience is not fun. Obedience is like walk the narrow road and it's morality. But obedience is not that. Obedience is trust and yielding my life to a God that I trust and a God that loves me. And so this week we look at John chapter 15. And we're going to, this isn't where we'll be the whole time, but we're going to be there just for a second and then we're going to jump into 2 Kings. But in John chapter 15, Jesus is speaking and Jesus says this. He says, I have loved you. I've loved you. Even as the Father has loved me. Therefore, remain in my love. Stay in my love. Stay in my presence. Stay with me. And he says, when you obey my commandments, you remain in my love. So he has just said, I love you. I have loved you. I've proven my love to you. You're about to see it on a cross. I have loved you. Therefore, I'm trustworthy. Stay in my love. How do I stay in in his love? Obey his commands. Obey my commandments. When you do that, you remain in my love, Jesus says, just as I obey my Father's commandments and remain in his love. What's the result? Verse 11, he says, I have told you these things. Why? So that you may be filled with joy. How many of us in the room today feel flatlined? We feel numb. We may not feel anger. We may not feel joy. We just kind of feel mediocre. I think the enemy takes us out. Because oftentimes we don't have joy, and when we don't have joy, we just kind of shrink back and sit down. And the Lord is saying, when you obey me, when you understand that I love you, then you're going to want to stay in my love. And the way you stay in my love is you stay in step with me. What does that mean, you obey me? You hear my voice, and you do what I tell you, and you stay in my presence. And when you stay in my presence, you will have joy that overflows. You will not have to ask for joy. You will have joy. And that is what all of us are seeking, whether you know Jesus or not. All of us are seeking joy. We're seeking a deeper satisfaction than this world offers. And the Lord is saying, here's how it's found. It is found in me. How do you access it? Trust me and obey me. Trust me and obey me. He says, yes, your joy will overflow will overflow. Now, here's the thing I want to say quickly about joy. Just a little side note. Joy is not a manic emotion. Joy is not a bubbling over effervescent happiness that is just like a manic. And sometimes we think that, and sometimes as good Christians, we think we need to manufacture joy. And so we're like, God's good all the time. God's good. When on the inside, we're dying in a pile. And the Lord is saying, no, joy is a steadfast assurance. It's, a, it's something that's so much deeper than happiness. 
Happiness is based on external factors. Joy comes from the inside. It's from the Spirit of God Himself. And it's, a, it's an assurance. It's a resting place. And it's powerful. And it silences the voice of the enemy. And it silences all the temptations that this world throws at us. Because we're deeply, deeply satisfied. Joy that overflows. And so what I want to look at today is what it looks like to obey God. What does it look like to obey God? Oftentimes, we already presume that we know what the answer is. I already assume in my mind, I know what God wants from me. He wants me to do right and not do wrong. He wants me to straighten up and he wants me to live a morally upright life. Now that's important. It's important that I'm not an ax murderer and that I'm not crazy, but it's That's not what God wants. That's not his chief end for you and for me. Obedience is not a checklist that I get to look at and go, check, 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 check. I did it because I can do that in my own strength. I don't need him to do that. And God is saying, no, obedience is you listen to my voice. You hear me. I speak to you and you do what I tell you to do. And then you get to see me work. You get to experience my power. You get to experience my peace. You get to experience what it means to minister to someone else through the power of the Holy Spirit. Obedience is a relationship, a relationship. And so in John 15, the verse that we just read, he said, when you obey my commands, you remain in my love. We often think you will receive my love when you obey my commands. You see the difference? We read it with the tone that God is saying, if you perform well and if you obey me, then you'll receive my love. And Jesus starts the passage by saying, I have loved you. I love you. Period, the end. I love you. Good, bad, and ugly. I love you. Now, let that be the catalyst. Let that be the driver to obedience. Don't flip it around and think obedience is the earning of love. Right? You see the difference? Because who wants to do that? I can do that for a little while, but eventually I'm going to bow out of that. Eventually I'm going to get really, really tired because I'm trying and I'm striving in my own strength to obey him so that he'll love me and be pleased with me. But if I start from the place, the steadfast, secure place, he loves me. He loves me. He sees every inch of me. He knows my fears. He knows my doubts. He knows what I said 10 minutes ago. He knows my thought life. He knows every ounce of me and he loves me. Why? Because of the blood of Jesus, the sacrifice made for me. I can come boldly to the throne. He loves me. He sees me. He's at work in my life. Now, let me meditate on that. Let me rest in that. And when I let that get down into my soul and into my guts, I'm like, Lord, I'll do whatever you tell me to do. I don't care what it is. I'll be a fool for you. I'll be a fool for you. I just love you. It's, it's a, listen, obedience is a natural response when you are girded in the truth that God loves you. It is not hard work. It's not always easy, but it's not hard to want to obey and to obey him when you are grounded and rooted in his love. That being said, I want to remind all of us, or at least set the tone before we walk into this passage, that obedience is always costly. It is always costly. It costs us something. It costs me my rights. I don't have the right to decide. I don't have the right to determine or or grab the reins and be in control. So at minimum, obedience costs me my own independence, my own Um, self-control in the sense of I get to call the shots. But sometimes obedience is even more costly. Obedience is laying down my life 
and saying, I would have never moved here. I would have never chosen this for myself, but I'm following you, Lord. And so it's not my will, but your will be done. Obedience is always costly. And the reason I start by saying that is because we're about to look at a beautiful picture of what obedience looks like in, in 2 Kings chapter 17. 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 17. And we're going to look at the prophet Elijah. Now the passage is on your notes on the table. If you have your Bible, turn with me. But we're going to look at a beautiful picture of a man that was human just like you and just like me. And yet he obeyed God. He took small steps of obedience and he took large leaps of obedience. And we're going to look at the gamut today. But you'll see and I'll see as we dig in, it was always costly. Obedience was always costly. So let's jump in. 1 Kings 17. Now Elijah, it says, who was from Tishbe and Gilead, told King Ahab, he said, As surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, the God I serve, there will be no dew or rain during the next few years until I give the word. What does he mean by that? Let me give you a background. The Israelite people had been scattered to Babylon. They had stopped following the true God, Yahweh, Elijah's God. They had start, they started following King Ahab and, and uh, just all sorts of false gods, honestly. And they had just gone awry. And the Lord sent Elijah to give a word to say, get yourself together, repent, come back to the Lord. So Elijah had been sent, but Elijah is speaking to King Ahab, thinking that there is no one on his side. He feels totally alone, and yet he's obeying God. And, but there were 7,000 Israelites, apparently, that had not bended their knee to the false god yet. But, he, they were, but even though they had not, they were so scared that they wouldn't let Elijah know they were there because they were paralyzed by fear. So he really is functioning with the belief that he's all by himself. And that's never a fun feeling. So this is where we find Elijah. So the reason I think it's important that we know that is if you and I are waiting on a feeling of I want to obey, I want to do that thing, and you think that thing is going to be the driver, it, you just are never, we're never going to feel, feel excited about obedience sometimes, but for the most part, it's always costly. And God says very clearly in Isaiah 55, he says, your ways are not my ways and your thoughts are never like my thoughts. What does that mean? That means when God asks me to do something, it's not going to sound natural and typically it's going to sound crazy. It will not be a natural thought that I have. Even if it seems like a totally appropriate move to make, it's still something that's like, Ugh. let me give you a quick example. Sunday at church, I was sitting there worshiping and I saw this precious little 10-year-old girl hobbling in on some crutches. She had just broken her leg. She was out of sports. She's been out of sports. She's going to be out of sports. They're hoping that it will heal so she doesn't have to have surgery. And here she comes just hobbling up. She just had a birthday. And I'm sitting there worshiping. I look over and I keep seeing her. And I just sensed the Holy Spirit say to me, uh, I want you to go pray for her. Now, how um, non-threatening is that? That's not a big ask. But to me in that moment, it was like, oh, oh, oh. She's going to think I'm crazy. I'm going to put this sweet little girl on the spot. She's going to think I'm weird. I mean, she knew who I was, but, and then I, but really at the core root of it, it was like, oh, that's kind of inconvenient. I love this worship song. I'd like to keep singing it. And I don't want to feel weird. I don't want it to be an awkward moment. And so I just kept singing with a lot of power. 
And then all of a sudden, I felt like the Lord kept saying, are you, are you going to do it or not? And I was like, all right, okay. But I didn't feel excited about doing it. And then I went over and I prayed for this precious angel, and it was a beautiful thing. But that's just a little example of what I'm talking about. And so Elijah is in this foreign country, and he's not really necessarily wanting to be there. But he's doing what God's told him to do. Obedience is always costly at some level. Verse 2, it says, Then the Lord said to Elijah... Okay, so here's his his second. Here's where we really get into the direct obedience. In verse 3, the Lord says to Elijah, Go to the east and hide by Kareth Brook, the Kareth Brook, near where it enters the Jordan River. That's his first thing. Go, go by this brook and then drink from the brook and eat what the ravens bring you. For I have commanded them to bring you food. Okay, just stop for a second. Elijah's a man like I'm a woman. He's human and I'm human. So imagine this is what he's just heard. Go to the east and hide by the Kareth brook. Okay, that's not totally absurd. Drink from the brook. Now, mind you, we just read there's a drought. So he's probably thirsty. So that seems logical. But then he says, and eat what the ravens bring you. What are ravens? They're birds. They were birds then and they're birds now. <clears throat> so he's saying to Elijah, go hide out by this brook by yourself. Just go and you'll drink by the brook and I'm going to bring you food from the mouth of these ravens. Now, ravens are like pigeons, y'all. They're dirty birds. They're dirty birds. I don't want to eat from the mouth of a raven. But certainly back then, ravens were never touched. They were nasty birds. They were considered gross, gross animals back then. And I think God is fully intentional when he says it's going to be a raven and not a pretty little cardinal. Right? He is building Elijah's faith. And to build my faith in your faith, it requires testing. If it's not hard to believe, if it's not easy, if if it's super easy to do, it doesn't take a lot of faith. But when it's challenging my mind and challenging my will, now faith starts to get tested. Now the rubber meets the the road. Am I really going to obey God? Because this could turn out really weird. Am I really going to say yes? Am I really going to say yes? So Elijah, in verse 5, it says, Elijah did as the Lord told him. First step of obedience. He did what God told him to do. Something I want to point out about this first step of obedience is it only involved Elijah and the Lord. It only involved Elijah and the Lord. It wasn't, nobody else was at risk. So the risk factor was fairly low. Because Elijah's thinking, you know what? I'm going to this brook by myself. Nobody else is going to be there. If I misheard this and there's no raven that brings me food, I'll just die by myself. It's going to be fine and I won't be humiliated and God won't be humiliated and it's going to be okay. So the risk factor is low and God is gracious. And so Elijah obeys and he goes to this brook and it says he camped beside the Kareth brook east of the Jordan. Verse 6, the ravens brought him bread and meat each morning and evening and he drank from the brook. What can we learn from that? God's word is trustworthy. God's word is trustworthy. Just what God said to him, the ravens will feed you. And what happened? The ravens brought him bread and meat each morning and evening, and he drank from the brook. Now, here's what's crazy. I'm just putting myself in Elijah's place. And I've said yes to something that seems absurd. And then what's even more absurd is that it actually happens. Have you ever had that experience where God has asked you to take a step of faith and you thought, well, this is going to be awful. And then it goes well. And you're like, oh, my goodness. 
He's actually here. He actually showed up. He's actually with me. He actually is God. He actually is working in power. He actually is who he says he is. You see, God, when God asks me to obey, it's always to deepen my faith. It's always to deepen my faith in him and my love for him. And then it's always to be poured out as a blessing to someone else. There's always purpose in it. But the chief purpose is that I just get to know him better. I get to love him more because I get to experience him in a way that moves from my head to my heart and my gut. I'm putting skin on this thing called faith. He's asking me to do something that I would have never thought to do myself. I'm going to say yes to him. And when I step out, there he is. But you see, if you're like me, we want to step back and go, okay, bring the raven first. And then I'll believe this. Let me just see, show me some ravens flying around with food in their mouth and I'll believe that it can happen and then I'll go and I'll sit there and I'll wait. Then I'll believe And what does God say in the New Testament when he's looking at Thomas? He says, you believe because you see, but blessed are those that believe without seeing. He obeyed first and the Lord provided just as he said he would. Just as he said he would. Verse 7 says, but after a while the brook dried up and there was no rainfall anywhere in the land. So that's step number one, the first act of obedience. Let's move on to the second act of obedience we see in verse 8. It says, Then the Lord said to Elijah, Okay, now go and live in the village of Zarephath near the city of Sidon. I've instructed a widow there to feed you. Okay, so now it involves somebody else. So here's the thing. I don't know if you're like me, but if I'm Elijah, I'm like, okay, that's not too absurd. I'll do it. And I just saw you provide with a raven, so obviously a stretch to provide through another human isn't that big of a stretch, so yeah, okay, I'll go. So he takes off to Zarephath. Let me just say quickly, too, he would never have chosen to go to Zarephath. That was not a city Israelites would have wanted to go to. So this would not have been something that he just thought, you know what, I'm going to go to Zarephath and hang out. Okay, so he's going to Zarephath. Verse 10, it says, so he went to Zarephath. As he arrived at the gates of the village, he saw a widow gathering sticks. And he asked her, first of all, the fact that she's gathering sticks lets us know she doesn't even have firewood. So she's poor. We're about to learn how poor she is. He asks the woman, he says, would you please bring me a little water in a cup? Verse 11 says, as she was going to get the water in the cup... He called to her and he said, oh, and bring me a bite of bread too. Bring me a bite of bread too. Now here's the thing. The Lord has told him there's a widow that will provide food for you. So he's asking her for food. He sees the widow. He knows this is the one. And he asks her for food. But here's what's interesting is I'm imagining before we read on, in Elijah's mind, you know, he did the first step of obedience. That was go sit by the brook and wait for the ravens. And so he said, okay, that was a risk. He's saying, okay, this seems weird. But you provided with relative ease. That was pretty smooth. It didn't cost a whole lot. Didn't embarrass me. Didn't embarrass anybody else. Nobody even saw it. This is cool. Okay, all right. I'm going to go. I'm going to meet this widow at Zarephath, and I'm going to ask her to bring me food. Now, based on my last experience, I might assume that everything will go smoothly again. And she's going to go, perfect. How do you like your eggs? Hold on one minute. I'll be right back. But that's not what happens. Look in verse 12. But she said, now I'm going to insert what I believe her tone would be. 
I swear by the Lord your God that I don't have a single piece of bread in this house. And I have only a handful of flour left in the jar and a little cooking oil at the bottom of the jug. I was just gathering a few sticks to cook this last meal and then my son and I will die. I doubt that's what he thought he would find. Right? So picture yourself in Elijah's shoes. He's just had a great experience with the Lord. He's been obedient again. He's going to Zarephath. He's met the widow. All right, here's how this is going to go. She's going to bring me some freshly cooked eggs and a biscuit with olive oil. It's going to be great. And no, she turns around and she gets in his face and she says, let me tell you something. Not only do I not have the, well, first of all, you have the audacity to ask me for food. Let me just tell you why I don't have food. I'm dying. I'm destitute. I'm a single mom doing everything I can to make ends meet. And I don't have enough for me and my son. Just enough for one last meal and then we will die. So you want some biscuits? I don't think so. Now imagine Elijah. What would be going through your mind if you were Elijah? I'll just tell you some of my thoughts. My thoughts would have been, I must have missed this. Okay, this must not be God. I missed the wrong, this is the wrong person. Let me go find someone else. Or, oh my goodness, let me, how fast can I get out of here? Or what do I do to fix this myself? How do I fix this for her? All of a sudden now the responsibility is in my lap and I'm overwhelmed and I'm like, Lord, what in the world? But I can tell you in that moment, obedience is costly. And it doesn't just involve Elijah. It doesn't just involve Elijah. Something I've always heard said and have said myself is just because something's easy doesn't make it God. And just because it's hard doesn't make it or mean that it's not God. And so Elijah in that moment had to go back and go, what's the last thing I heard the Lord say to me? What's the last thing I knew that he said? He said, go to Zarephath, find the widow. She's going to provide for you. Okay. All right. This does not look like what provision ought to look like. This is not what I thought I would meet, but I'm trusting you. Anybody ever been there? Said, yes, Lord, I'll follow you. Hold on just a second. It was not meant to be this hard or go this awry. Did I mishear God? Am I crazy? Has he left me? In those moments, I have to go back and say, what do I know that you said to me? And Lord, if I have been misdirected, if I have somehow missed it, you can tell me you are powerful enough. But if I don't hear anything different, I stand. Okay, I obeyed. The last thing I heard, I obeyed. And so this difficulty is obviously allowed by God, maybe even ordained by God. I'm going to walk through it. Keep walking forward in obedience. And that is what Elijah does. So she says, I was just gathering a few sticks to cook this last meal, and then my son and I will die. And then my son and I will die. Verse 13, but Elijah said to her, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Go ahead and do just what you've said, but make a little bread for me first. Oh my gosh, it's just getting more awkward. But make a little bread for me first. It, I, I, I just can't imagine that she did not want to, and might, she possibly did slap him. And he said, then use what's left to prepare a meal for yourself and your son. Obedience is costly. Verse 14, why? For this is what the Lord said. 
Elijah is repeating what God said. The God of Israel says, There will always be flour and olive oil left in your containers until the time when the Lord sends rain and the crops grow again. Here's what is true about the Lord. We see this from Genesis to Revelation in Scripture. Oftentimes, you don't get the next word until you need it and you're in the next step of obedience. So before he said, go to Zarephath, look for the widow, she's going to provide for you. He does that. And then I believe in the moment when he's faced with the unexpected and the difficulty of this woman's state, in that moment, the Lord is saying, here's what's happening. You tell her there will always be enough flour, always enough olive oil in the jar till the rain comes. But God didn't give him all of that because there's a work to be done in Elijah's heart as much as there is in the widow's heart. And the work is you stay in step with me. You stay in step with me. I am God. If you want to experience my refuge, my presence is with me, God. You, Laura, stay in my presence. How do you do that? You stay in step. How do you stay in step? You obey me. You trust me and you obey me. Don't get out in front and don't lag behind. Stay in step. I will always give you what you need in the moment. Scripture says my grace abounds in your weakness. In your weakness. That means in real time, in the moment when you need it, and you're driving to whatever you think is going to be your death, the hard meeting, the confrontation, the whatever, the whatever, the whatever, and you think, well, this is going to go awful. And then all of a sudden, you remind yourself, God, you're with me, and you get in there, and all of a sudden, you start saying stuff that you never would have thought on your own. You couldn't have prepared for. Couldn't have prepared for. So many times when I'm teaching, I can work diligently, and I do, and it's important to prepare. But I always know and I depend and I ask the Lord, Lord, you seize my tongue. And any example you want said, you say it. Anything you want to strike down, strike it from my mind. But Lord, you give me in real time what your spirit wants said. Because every audience I speak to is different. Friendswood, totally different than River Oaks. The messages are oftentimes varying in some way. In the moment... Because Elijah's obedient, he's got the presence of God thick on him to say, here's what you say. Here's what you say. So he says it to her. He says, there will always be flour and olive oil left in your containers until the time when the Lord sends the rain and the crops to grow again. So let's look at verse 15. She did, as Elijah said, I wonder what she was mumbling under her breath as she did it. And she and Elijah and her family continued to eat for many days. There was always enough flour and olive oil left in the containers just as the Lord had promised Elijah. Just as the Lord had promised. What if Elijah had said, I just would rather stay at this brook. I've obeyed you. I'm good. Let me just sit here for a little bit. I need to coast for a little while longer. He would have missed this. He would have missed this. Y'all, there is something so beautiful when God ministers in my life and provides for me, but it is altogether better when I see him use me to provide for someone else. Use me to minister to someone else, to serve them, to see God give a word to me for someone or to provide for them in a way that he's provided for me. Paul says that in Corinthians, and he says, we've been through these afflictions because we've received the comfort of Jesus. And the reason we've received the comfort of Jesus is so that we can comfort you with it. And that's what's happening here. Elijah has been obedient. Because of his obedience, this woman is living. Now, Yahweh's not her God. We see that in Scripture in just a second. But she's going to meet God because of Elijah's obedience. 
because of Elijah's obedience. I have a text thread of friends that pray for me that I'm great friends with. And I shot a text out on Monday and said, hey, this is what I'm teaching this week. Give me some examples in your life when you've said yes to God, when you've obeyed him and it seemed absurd or even ridiculous. And yet you saw the blessing that came from that obedience. And one of my sweet friends texted back and she said, I remember it like it was yesterday. She was flooded through with Harvey. She got totally flooded out and they lived in an RV like so many people did and still are. Lived in an RV for several months in their driveway. And she said, we're sitting here. She has four kids and a husband and there's six of them in this small RV. And they're living there. And she said, I remember so distinctly hearing the Lord say to me, Every single week, as long as you're in this RV, I want you to send a meal to someone else. Oh, it makes me just so weepy. I want you to send a meal to someone else. And she said, she was like, what? No, 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 no. I barely have enough sticks for my own family is what she's thinking. And she said, I also thought this seems ridiculous that it would just be awkward. And so she said, but I knew God said to me, Every single week, I want you to send one meal to someone as long as you're in this RV. So she did that. And she said every single week she did that, she got two meals back. Two meals back. Never asked for one of them. And she said sometimes they'd be on the same day. Sometimes they'd be throughout the week. But I always got two meals back because I made that sacrifice of obedience. And I just did what God said to do, even though it didn't make sense in my natural mind. In my natural mind. Obedience feels costly, but it's so rewarding. It's so rewarding. And here's the thing. It's not rewarding because she got the meals. It's not rewarding because Elijah got fed. It's rewarding because we get to experience God. We get to experience refuge, the presence of God. That is the reward, the great reward. I don't obey so I can get something from his hand. I obey so I can get his heart I want his heart. You do too. We were made for it. We were made for it. So they ate for many, many days. And then in verse 17, we're about to see Elijah. He's taken two steps of obedience. One was fairly small. The next one was a little bigger. And now we're about to see him take a leap. Verse 17, it says, Sometime later, the woman's son became sick. And he grew worse and worse, and finally he died. And then Elijah said, Oh man, and then she said to Elijah, Oh man of God, what have you done to me? Have you come here to point out my sins and kill my son? She's under the mindset that her son has died because of her own failures, shortcomings, or sins. And the second thing, she's under the impression that somehow the, the power came from Elijah. Oh man of God, What have you done to me? Now put yourself back in Elijah's shoes. How do you feel in this moment? Utterly panicked. Utterly panicked. I don't know how to do this. I'm way out of my league. Bread is one thing, but a life is another. He's at a loss. In verse 19, Elijah replies, Give me your son. And he took the child's body from her arms and carried him up the stairs to the room where he was staying. And he laid the body on his bed. Then Elijah cried out to the Lord, O Lord my God, 
Why have you brought tragedy to this widow who has opened her home to me, causing her son to die? This seems so cruel. She has provided for me for days. We've become friends. Why have you allowed this tragedy to come on her and her son die? Lord, why? Here's another beautiful thing I love in this picture of Elijah is that he has full freedom to be honest and raw before his God. Do you feel that same freedom? It's been afforded to you. We come boldly to the throne having been sprinkled by the blood. Part of our refuge is we can enter into his presence just as we are. And he never leaves us the same. But just as I am, snotty mess of tears, angry, frustrated, joyful, whatever it is, I get to come boldly to the throne. Elijah is speaking honestly and open, and he says, Lord, why? Why would you allow this tragedy to come on this widow? He's grieving for the widow. And this is what I love about Elijah we see and about obedience in our relationship is there's no manual. There's a book of God. There is the Bible that we look through. But when we walk in real time with the Lord, the way I'm called to minister to you may be completely different than the way God wants someone else to minister to you. And so there's not like a manual where you go, okay, what do we do if the widow's son has died? Okay, if it's a widow's son, you're going to do this. You're going to pick that child up. And you're going to take him upstairs. Now, if there's not an upstairs, you should find an upstairs. And we want a formula, don't we? Because we want to know that the outcome can be secured. We don't know that. Here's the thing. What I always know is that I serve a God whose character is trustworthy. He is good and he is honest and he is faithful. He is true. What I don't know is what he's going to do next. Right? His ways are not my ways. His thoughts are nothing like my thoughts. And so, yes, he may physically heal in this situation, but not in this situation. He may allow this tragedy to, to enter into someone's life, but he may protect this one from the same tragedy, same similar tragedy. God's ways are not, are not mine, but what I do know and I can take to the bank is that I serve a faithful God, and he says in Romans 8, 28, all things will work together for good according to the... Um, those that are called according to my purpose. All things will work together. What I also know is that he's faithful. He loves me. He will never leave me or forsake me. And so here's the thing. Elijah is doing the next thing that he knows to do. There is no manual that he has looked at. He is taking this boy upstairs. He's laid him on the bed. He cries out to God. And then he says in verse 24, no, no, no. In verse 21, he says, And then Elijah stretched himself out over the child three times. Now that must have been God's direction in the moment because you wouldn't lay on top of a child three times. I mean, that's not like, oh, well, obviously that's what he did. And so I believe God is, because he's in the spirit and because he's the refuge of the presence of God is with him, because he's been obedient, he's walking with the Lord, he just is sensing what to do, even if he couldn't articulate it. And he stretches himself over the child three times and he cries out to the Lord, Oh Lord, my God, please let this child's life return to him. Notice he doesn't have a demanding spirit. He's crying out to the Lord. There's a difference. Verse 22 says, The Lord heard Elijah's prayer, and the life of the child returned, and he revived. And then Elijah brought him down to the upper room and gave him to his mother. And he said, Look, your son is alive. Your son is alive. 
She got her son back, but she got so much more than her son back. You see, the Lord had been speaking and ministering to this woman for several days through the prophet Elijah. But she continued to say to Elijah, your God, your God, why has your God done this to me? And what does the Lord want? The Lord wants her. He wants her to, no, 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 no. I see you. Elijah's not special. I see you. I've called you by name. I have ransomed you. You are mine. And I want you to know that. And I want you to know that beyond the shadow of a doubt. He says, look, your son is alive. In verse 24, the woman says to Elijah, now I know for sure that you are a man of God and that the Lord truly speaks through you. This woman got her son back, but she got a God that she did not know personally before. Now she does. You see it? You see the difference? And it started because Elijah was obedient to the simple word, go to Zarephath and find a widow and she will provide. God knew this day was coming. And he knew that he was going to use Elijah. Y'all, we have no idea the ramifications of our obedience. We have no idea. And sometimes I get to see them in real time. Sometimes I get to go, that's why you had me do that. And other times I don't. And I just leave that to God. I'm just going to trust you. I don't know if that produced any fruit. I don't know if that meant anything. But I'm just going to trust you. I'm just going to trust you. It matters. But here's the thing. The reason I am just going to trust you is because all of these steps of obedience have strengthened and deepened my faith. And my relationship has continued to grow and continued to be strengthened. So that the next step of obedience, and while it may be a really big leap, I'm going to do it because you've proven trustworthy to me. And your word has continued to remind me that you are a God that I can trust. So I'm going to say yes. I'm going to say yes. And sometimes my steps of obedience seem absurd, and I don't really understand how they all turned out. But other times I get to see something like this. Because the truth is, when we entered into this world, we are all dead spiritually. Because sin is prevalent. And I get to see men and women come to Christ and become alive again in Him. Through steps of obedience. Through steps of obedience. What is your next step of obedience? What is it? Let me give you a quick glimpse of what mine is. Recently, a couple weeks ago, we sold our house and we're repairing another house. So we're living with my sister right now. And a few days ago, I drove by my old house and I saw my neighbor walking outside. And he was on the phone, so I didn't stop and say anything. And I just drove by, and I didn't really think much more than that. Then in church, a few days later on Sunday, I'm in church, and I clearly hear the Lord to go pray for this little 10-year-old girl. And then the next thing I hear clearly, as my pastor is preaching, and I'm listening to him, but as he's speaking, I hear the God say to me, I want you to call those neighbors. And I want you to lay out what the gospel really means. I, I want you to tell them. Because, Laura, somebody may, they may not know that. You can't assume. And I don't. I don't know that, they, I don't know. But, but tell them. Somebody told you. You didn't just pick up and read it in Leviticus and it all makes sense. I sent someone. Her name was Sparky. She was your camp counselor. And she took the time to sit next to you and explain it. Would you do that for me? No! No, that feels awkward. That feels awkward. That feels like an agenda. 
Well, don't worry about what you're going to say. Just let me speak through you. You'll know what to say when you're there, but would you just be obedient and take the step? And so on Tuesday, I, or Monday, it was on Monday, I just shot a quick text. Hey, we'd love, to, we'd love to go to dinner. Immediately, immediately, they both responded, yes, we would love that. When? Saturday. Boom. All right, it's on. We're going to meet up Saturday night. That's been my next step. It's not huge. It's not some big, but it could be life-changing. And at best, they're going to know God loves them because they're going to eat a good meal and not pay for it. (laughs) What is God asking you to do? No step is too small or insignificant. Do you want to know God? Do you want to understand his will for your life? Do you want to know that he sees you and loves you? Do you want to experience his comfort? Do you want to know that he's your refuge? Then listen to him and walk in step with him. Say yes to the next thing he's asking you to do. Let me pray for us. Lord, we love you. We love you, and we are not worthy to be in your presence, but yet you have made us worthy because you love us and you sent Jesus to die for us. And it's because of that love, Lord, that we say yes to you. And all the fear, trepidation, overanalyzation, all of that, Lord, we just surrender it to you. We don't have to fully understand it all to say yes. So, God, we just invite you to speak to us this week. Lord, speak into our lives. And we confess back to you that we will say yes. And you'll give us the moxie we need to do it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, girls. Thanks for being here. We'll see you hopefully tomorrow night, and if not, next week.